Well, good morning. <laughs> Fan blowing here. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm a klutz, as you saw it again. Um, that's all good. It's so good to have you here at the chapel this morning. Uh, I got a chance to meet with a couple of new people today, and it's so good to uh, meet with you. If you are new to our congregation or to our service, uh, there is a welcome table right outside of the sanctuary to the right. Uh, would you go out there and let them know that you're here? We also have a gift that we would like to give to you. I'll give you some information about our church, and we have a gift that we would like to give you as well. Uh, there are three ways that you can usually get information here about our church. First is through the website. If you go to thechapelnj.org, uh, you will be able to get good information about the church. You'll be able to find leaders there and the groups that are going on. And so that is one of the sites. Uh, a second way is through emails. If you're on the email list, uh, you should be getting emails throughout the week and it will get prayer requests or other things that are coming up. And the third way is the little sheet that you have in your hands uh, today. If you would grab those sheets and make sure you look through them, there's some of the key points. I'm not gonna go through all of them this morning, um, but I would just encourage you a couple of them. Uh, the Karenet Banquet uh, is a ministry that we um, donate to and help out, and uh, we have a, they have a banquet on October the 20th, and encourage you to reach out uh, to Ruth Hoth, or there is a um, sign-up sheet on the table outside. Uh, Believer's Baptism as well, as well as a Newcomer's Luncheon that we will have. Uh, the Newcomer's Luncheon will be on October the 2nd, will be right after service. If you've been here with the church for probably a year or less, and you have not been part of that service, uh, part of that luncheon, come to the luncheon. Uh, you'll get a chance to meet with the elders and other leaders here, and we get a chance to tell you about our ministry and get a chance to meet with you as well. If you've never uh, come to, uh, if you've never gone into the waters of Believer's Baptist, uh, we are having that as well, probably sometime in the month of October. We have a date to be determined, but there is a sheet outside as well for that. And new members as well. If you're interested in becoming a new member, uh, we are going to have two classes on October the 9th and October the 16th. Uh, those are going to be immediately after church service, I believe, and uh, you'll need to attend those if you want to be part of it. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, great opportunities. Hoving Home is going to uh, uh, sing for us on October the 16th as well. Uh, you on your sheet, on your table, sorry, tables. Man, I am out to lunch here. On your seats, there we go, <laughs> on your seats. We talked about these cards last week. I, I would encourage you to uh, grab that card, use it. Hopefully you've already memorized Isaiah 4110, right? Uh-huh, I didn't hear Kind of like my students in school here. Come on, guys. Uh, so Isaiah 41.10, if you didn't memorize that one, you're a week behind because Pastor Tim is going to give you Philippians 1.6 today. Uh, next week, we have a missionary speaking, I believe, uh, next week um, during our service. And uh, then I'm looking forward to going into Ecclesiastes. The uh, book of Ecclesiastes will be our study uh, beginning in October. I think that's all that I had. Did I miss anything? My 5,000 announcements? No, I did not. So let me read a psalm and let's pray this morning. It's the very last psalm, which is a good one for us as we worship together today. Praise the Lord. 
Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sounds. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath do what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray that we would praise you today. Father, in the midst of all the chaos and the confusion and the pain and the troubles and the trials and the difficulties, Father, that are happening even this morning, that are happening in our lives, Father, it is so easy to get so distracted from, from your beauty so distracted from your grace, so distracted from your son. So Lord, help us not to be filled by chaos and confusion and fear and anxiety. I pray that you would fill us with your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray that you would remind us that you've begun a good work in us and that you will complete it. And Lord, I pray that you would continue that work as we praise you today. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen and amen. This is amazing grace. 
nations rise and fall. Kingdoms once strong now shaken, we trust forever in your name, the name of Jesus. We trust the name of Jesus. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only king forever. Forevermore, you are victorious. Unmatched. Unmatched in all. In love and justice you will reign And every knee will bow Yes, they will We bring our expectations Our hope is anchored in your name The name of Jesus Oh, oh we trust the name of Jesus
gift of grace? What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is only bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Shout! 
the children be dismissed for junior church. Whenever I sing that song, I always want to add, I always want to edit the lyrics at one point. And not only all I have is Christ, but all I need is Christ. Because so often we think we have to do so much more and add to the work of Christ. And in that we deny the gospel that we have just so beautifully sung. So I trust that God will assure you in your heart, if you have trusted him, uh, that everything you need has been done by the power of God. The gospel is that glorious. Last night we had the opportunity with our missionaries from Rwanda to uh, share in how that work is going in Rwanda. And uh, just very encouraging to hear the good news of uh, people coming to Christ through the uh, education that is being provided, pastors who have been in ministry but have not known the fullness of the glory of the gospel, coming to hear it and to know and trust Christ for the very first time in their lives. That is an amazing uh, thing that they are seeing in Rwanda because it is a very churched culture, but it is is a very gospel-deprived culture. So people are doing ministry as a habit, as a practice, as a job, as opposed to a calling from God. Um, 
Brianna, I just want to say it's good to see you. Is that your friend sitting beside you? Okay. I, I got to get that out of my head because otherwise I'll be distracted the whole time. So, all right. I just, I saw a picture yesterday on Instagram and I'm like, I can't, I can't function if I don't speak my mind. Okay. So if I'm embarrassing you, sorry. Now we love Brianne. So we'll be watching you. Okay. I really said that so everybody would know. So you can turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians 1, 6 says this. If you've memorized it, you can say it with me. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Philippians 1, you can turn there. I want to tell you how this verse became uh, undoubtedly one of my go-to verses in my Christian experience, particularly in my ministry experience. I uh, sensed the calling of God in my heart in 12th grade, okay? Uh, I was in high school. I was sensing this call from God to go into ministry, and I was also sensing in my own spirit a very strong resistance to that call. Uh, I had grown up in a uh, family business, a number of you have probably heard this, but I grew up in a family business that I was very attracted to. I was very attracted to the stability of it, uh, the experience of it. I liked every part of uh, the business that my family had. It was an Ace Hardware store, and uh, I loved it. And when I began to sense God's call to ministry, I resisted. Strongly. Uh, I spent three years uh, doing what I loved, being successful and unhappy. And that's a bad place to be. To love what you're doing and have to lay down at night by yourself alone and face the reality of your own heart. And I, I lived with that struggle for three years. And it was a simple, hypothetical question by a pastor. Actually, it was an evangelist at my home church. Doug, you remember Ron Comfort? He used to come to our church. And he proceeded to give the invitation at the beginning of the sermon. And he simply asked this question. Would you signify by raising your hand that if God today speaks to a specific issue in my life, and I knew at that point, by the way, I was in serious trouble. <laughs> that I want you to raise your hand as, a, as an indication to God that you will do what he asks you to do. And in that moment, I, I raised my hand. He didn't even have to preach. Because I, what I had been battling in my heart and resisting and fighting off unsuccessfully because it would not go away. I learned that God is, as one of my literature classes would later inform me, the hound of heaven. And if you're his child and he has a plan for your life, he will not stop pursuing you. You may strive and try to run and resist the call of God. Good luck. Good luck. He is persistent and he is powerful. He wants to change your life. 
And in that moment of a hypothetical question, uh, all of my resistance evaporated. I'm not saying I still don't love the things that I was loving, but the resistance to God's call completely evaporated. Because what I realized in that moment was simply this. Tim Hoff was in rebellion against God. Now, I can't list for you ugly and, you know, a long list of terrible things in my life. But my rebellion is the essence of all of our sin. It doesn't matter if it's related to substance or pornography or whatever the list may be. Gossip, a failure to love others, anger, whatever it is. It is all. Rebellion against God. And that's when I saw myself there and the spirit of God was convicting persistently. And he finally threw that question. Because really, I heard the question this way. If God speaks to you, will you say no? And that, that changed the matrix. I was just struggling with God's call. No, I wasn't. I was saying no. I knew what he wanted, and I was turning and going the other direction. And that day, fascinatingly, the pastor preached on the story of Jonah. And the story is Jonah goes down to Nineveh, down into the boat, down into the belly of a fish. I thought, this doesn't end well. And that's how God just showed me. So a result of that was I had to get ready to go into academia. That's not a nut, by the way. It's education. In my family, we valued hard work. And education was second, third, or fourth on the list. I had never applied myself in school. I didn't even know if I could handle college. I was truly terrified by the experience. So I finally take my dad out to lunch. I think my dad's here today. There he is back there. That 87-year-old young man, okay? <laughs> My mom and dad are sitting right back there. Raise your hand real quick for people who don't know you, okay? So my parents came to Christ when I was four years old and that changed the trajectory of my life. That time when God broke my heart, showed me I was a rebel, also was a significant moment. And I said, okay, God, I'll, I didn't even know how to spell college, okay? My first year in college, I, I failed the... English aptitude test. And I had to take what everybody around me knew was called bonehead English. Okay, so I was no prize for God, okay? It was hard. I never cared about school. My senior year of high school, I left school at 11 o'clock in the morning, worked till midnight every day of that year. Because we were expanding the store and a lot of renovations, all kind of stupid, crazy stuff. I didn't even know if I could do it. I get to my first speech class. I, I got to tell you something. I, I wore a white shirt, a long sleeve white shirt with a tie, because that's what we did at the school we went to, right, Doug? Just like we do today, okay? And I was terrified. I got up, and the speech actually didn't go bad, but when I was finishing it, I went through hydrosis. You know what that is? Overwhelming sweating. And my entire shirt was saturated. Right? I sat down in my chair after that. I was so embarrassed. I mean, I just broke out in sweat. 
And I looked at God and I said, God, like, you want me to do this the rest of my life? Like, this is, I was, I was, I was devastated, to be honest. I didn't know what was happening. And shortly after that, and dealing with a number of other things in the academic environment that were new to me, uh, God gave me a verse, Philippians 1.6. This verse. That God always finishes what he starts. He always enables the calling that he gives. He gives all of the resources that are necessary to be effective in the lane that God has called you in life to run in. Don't be a fool and allow fear to keep you from what God wants to do in your life. That's what I was doing. Terrified of the call, terrified of the education, terrified of the experiences I had. I went to seminary, so I get done undergrad. I actually made it through, okay? I get to graduate school, and I am taking my first theological test. And at that school, they gave you this blue booklet. Okay, and that was called a composition, I think, notebook or what do you call those things, Doug? Where you write your essays. The blue book, okay? I got the blue book. It, every answer to every question was essay. I'm left-handed. Okay, I, I, I run my hand over what I write, okay? I got done my, I was shaking, like trembling. And I handed in the essay after I was done. I thought, well... That, that wasn't too bad compared to what I thought. The professor calls me, Dr. Warren Van Hetlow calls me and says, Tim, I can't read your writing. I said, well, if you can't read, I can help you. But he's like, no, I can't read your writing. Like, you have to rewrite this whole thing. And again, I get hit with that, what in the world? Now you're three years into this seven-year training period thinking, oh, my word. And again, I went through that process, just battling and coming to, oh, God, you called me to this. You, you have to help me. You can't leave me now in this circumstance. And my testimony is this. God is faithful. God is faithful. He always finishes what he starts. He never wavers on his commitment to us. And so this passage of scripture that I'm going to share with you this morning is a fascinating passage of scripture. It's, it's really a verse that is said in a thank you letter. If you read through the whole book of Philippians, you'll find that when you get to the end, Paul finally, Paul finally gets to the real point for why he's writing. And that is, he's simply writing a letter to say, thank you for your support while I'm in prison. Because in the context of prison, Paul needed daily support and money to meet the needs that were present in that setting. That's what house arrest was like in the ancient world. There were no TVs, it wasn't plushy. It was a difficult environment and you needed to get help for that. So verses 10 and 14 of chapter 4 tell you ultimately the reason for the letter. It's a personal letter that intends to say thanks. But in the middle, Paul digresses into a few theological themes. Okay? So in the first part in this introduction, verses 1 to 2 are a formal introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's people in Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's standard fodder for an ancient letter. And so Paul lays that down. But then he goes into this, if you will, an explosion of gratitude. 
as he thinks of the believers that had surrounded his life when he spent time in Philippi 10 years before the writing of this letter approximately, Paul writes and says, I thank God every time, verse three, that I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what Paul is saying to these believers is that as he reflects on their time together, he is very mindful of their shared experience. This is, it, it, it's kind of a, and, and it's the word koinonia for fellowship, but it's got a strengthening preposition attached to it. Okay, so there is this deep sharing, not just talking, but they were literally sharing the burdens of life together in the context of Paul's ministry. And Paul writes to them to express his deep gratitude. I had the privilege this week of spending time with Paul Stevenson, a man that was a student pastor to me when I was a teenager, one of the examples that God put in front of me. And I was talking with him and he, talk, he was talking about my parents and he said, I always remember after the services that were held at Calvary Baptist Church that your parents were such an encouragement to me, partnering with me and encouraged me in the ministry that God had called me to do. As Paul writes to this church, that's what he feels. He feels this deep sense of love and participation and deep sharing that has changed his life. And he writes to them to give them a deep sense of encouragement, verses three to five. And then verse seven, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me and God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. So as Paul thinks about this church, he, he, he explodes with encouragement and he explodes with gratitude for the ministry that they had shared together. And it's interesting to notice in verse four, Paul touches for the first time in this letter on the theme of the book as a whole, right? He says, in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So if you were to look through the book of Philippians and say, what is the theme that occurs most frequently? You would find that the theme of rejoicing is the overwhelming theme and thrust of this passage of scripture, the whole book. Is Paul's joy, is his confidence in Christ circumstantial? Because often ours is, right? We tend to be happy if our circumstances are happy. We tend to be good if the situation around us is good. And as Paul writes, he's writing in chains, verses 13 and 14 of chapter one say this, it says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That's Paul's circumstance as he writes a letter that is overwhelmingly about joy, and it is Paul's circumstance as he speaks in verse six of this overwhelming sense of confidence that he has in God himself. And so what I wanna do this morning is I wanna walk you through this verse of scripture in a, in a, in a beautiful context of joy that is not circumstantial, but instead it is those chains that are exposing the true heart of Paul. 
I often say to people, after our daughter went through a very difficult circumstance, losing a child of birth, I said to people this, I said, the trials that you experience first expose you before they change you. So we tend to always think of trials in terms of how they're going to change us. But the first thing I noticed in that valley of darkness, in that season of change, in that season of loss in their life, was that the trouble first let you know where they stood. It exposes you. And then ultimately it will change you. And so Paul writes with joy. What are the chains doing to Paul? They're causing him to get more intense in his walk with God and his encouragement of others. There is no self-pity He's grateful for the gift they sent. And he says, you know what? I'm good. All my needs are met. Go at it. Keep doing the work that God's called you to do. And one of the verses in this text that fires this idea of joy and confidence in Paul is verse 6. Because you have to ask the question, how can a guy in chains write a letter about joy? How does that happen? And I think verse 6 helps us to answer that question. And we'll work through this in three main phrases. Number one, he who began a good work in you. Folks, I want you to just stop and think about that statement. Paul is not complimenting them for a good choice. Paul's instead pointing to God And noting that the work that was being fleshed out in their lives spiritually was owing to sovereign grace. That God had moved and God had worked in their lives. So that what they were caught in the midst of in this walk with God was a result of divine intervention. Not of human intellect. It's important that you sit down and allow that to settle in. Right? Think through the process that you went through as you began to hear the gospel. Ed Quinones was sharing with the teenagers last Sunday night how he came to faith in Christ. And one of the things that he shared with them is that God was continually knocking at the door of my heart. God was working through circumstances. He was in pursuit of Ed. And Ed was expressing in such a beautiful way the words of Jesus in John 6 and John 15. Jesus says this, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Aren't you thankful for that? Because if it came down to intellect, I'm on the outside. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't wise enough. God moved. So here's the way I say it to people, because I realize there's a mystery, right? Because God calls us to repent. But here's the thing you need to realize. No one comes to Christ unaided okay please understand how I mean that no one comes to saving faith in Christ apart from a work of the spirit that opens their eyes to the truthfulness of the gospel and if God has done that in your heart what it will make you is one of the most humble people on the planet because you know that you're standing with God and all of your progress in God are owing to the fact that God is at work in you Your saving starts with God. We sometimes have sung the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here's what it says. And I I think often we are singing 
beautiful mysteries. And there is something about singing those truths that is deeply encouraging and thrilling to our hearts, but we haven't really stopped and thought about it. So in the context of this fact that no one comes to God unaided, apart from a work of the Spirit of God in their life, listen to the words of Come Thou Fount. Jesus sought me when a stranger, listen to what it says, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. That is, he intervened between parties, a hostile sinner named Tim Hoff and a holy God whose justice needed to be satisfied. And Christ intervened and took the wrath of God that I deserve so that I could experience freedom from the penalty of my sin. Isn't that a glorious truth? He sought me when a stranger, where was I going? I wasn't looking for help. I was looking for happiness. And he intervened when I was wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger. And then the song that we just sang, which is why I love this song. The second verse says this. It says, and as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, he looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Folks, here's, I hope when you sing, I hope you are thinking through the words. And I hope you realize that there is powerful gospel, powerful truth about how God has been at work in your life that led to this new relationship with him. As you look back in your life, as you see the work of God in your life, it is owing to his grace and to his sovereign hand and to his favor that brought you to a place where Christ became attractive and lovely and beautiful and saving. And that is owing to God. And that's the point that Paul wants to make to them. The other thing I think that is interesting as a sidebar here is that this, this idea of he who has begun a good work in you, all right, that idea is in the plural. Okay, so when Paul writes the letter of Philippians, it is not an individual letter. It is a letter to the church as a whole. So he is addressing them in relationship to the gospel in the plural because God's promises are not intended for personal enjoyment, though they are enjoyable, okay? They're meant to fill us so that we can begin to serve others and love others and glorify God together in the context of church life. Paul has an intense focus in this epistle, and I touched on this earlier, on this idea of shared life. That sum koinonia, that we are sharing in the experience of Christ together. And as we enjoy Christ, we are encouraging each other. So it's in the context of community. And, and here's the simple thought I want to boil that little sidebar down to. Don't, allowing, don't allow attending church to replace being the church. Don't allow attending church to replace being the church. Folks, please understand, God has called you into a family and he calls the church a family for a reason. It's because you and I have God-given responsibilities to one another for encouragement, for our spiritual health. So don't, don't say, well, I go to church. Well, you know what? God's more interested not in the fact that you go to church and you should, but you should come to church so that you can hear the good news of Christ, find your life changing, and then be the church for the world that we live in. They so desperately need to see it. I was talking with uh, Craig and Jewel Utt who run the Community Blend. 
we're reflecting on the fact that people that get in the context of relationships tend to have a healthier, stronger, more sustainable spiritual life. Uh, we have the privilege, a number of us in our church family, of working with the youth. And one of the, here's one of the things I've found happening. Uh, apart from the fact of being reminded what they're really like. Okay? And I love that. I, I love these kids. I am, my heart is deeply encouraged. But here's the thing. I was talking with one of the people that helps us out. Because we are spending time together doing ministry, we're finding that our relationship is being enhanced. Our affections and our love for one another is being strengthened in the context of that life together. So the thing I want to encourage you to do is to be sure that you are not just coming to church, but that you are being the church because God began a good work in you, meaning the church as a whole. So the Christian living can never be boiled down to a personal life coaching system so that I can have my best life now. That is not the purpose of the gospel. It's not the purpose of the work of the Spirit in your life. He is always doing it to, to, to remind us that he has begun something in us. And that leads to the second thought. And, and let me just say this. There is this tragedy of isolated Christian living in the American culture. Where there is a hyper focus on individuality, on individual expression, on individual uh, freedom, whatever, you, however you want to say it. There is a focus on me when the focus of scripture is on us. Okay, and I pray that you don't lose that. God started something not only in you, when he saved you, he made you part of the church. You are, Ephesians 2, his household. And he aims to do something very powerful there. So there is a danger in isolated Christian living because failure always breeds guilt. Guilt breeds isolation, then hopelessness, and then enslavement and destruction. And I hope that when you are struggling, you have people who are close enough to you in your life that they can draw near and make a difference in your heart and in your life. Because often we are struggling and guess what? Nobody knows. You know why? Because we tend to live isolated lives. God started something in you, but he started something in the context of community. And I understand the individual aspects, but if you miss stepping back and saying there's a bigger work of God that is present here than just Tim Hoff. Because if I was isolated, I want to tell you something, I would struggle deeply. God intends for us to thrive in the context of community. So he who began a good work in you, the first phrase, will bring it to completion. This is a fascinating word. Same word that, used, that Jesus Christ uses on the cross when he says it is finished. The work, of our, the work that was done for our redeeming forgiveness and saving is completed. And now our, our relationship to God can be secured fully and perfectly through the work of Christ. And the promise of this text is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to perfection or this idea. He will bring it to full maturity. That's a powerful promise. In the midst of your struggles, you need to remember that the one that started something in you has made a promise to you, and that is that he will bring it to its fullness. He is 
fully devoted and fully committed to your progress in Christ. That for Paul was a ground of hope. Now, this idea of bringing it to completion implies something, okay? If God is bringing it to completion in the present tense, okay, that means that I have been invited into a process that I am not yet everything that I will be in Christ. So that, that means we have to distinguish two words this morning. We have to distinguish the word salvation and some of you know the second S word, sanctification. Okay, our, our salvation is captured in the gospel of John with the word, the new birth. Jesus said to the crowds, you must be born again. That is the picture of a miracle by which the spirit of God transforms my heart. Notice that our saving, our transformation is not owing to us. It's owing to the spirit of God coming and we are really born again. Literally means to be born enough from above. That God intervenes in time in the heart of a rebel and so changes them that it can be called a new birth. They are reborn. And that's, that's the idea of our saving. I have a new status. I am a child of God. In response to repentance and faith as the spirit works, he declares us righteous and forgiven in Christ. And so we can say, all I need is Christ. Okay, so that's that first step, that when the gospel breaks through and my heart is changed and I respond to God with repentance and trust in him and he credits the righteousness of Christ to me so that my standing is completely owing to the work of God. I am a child of God. I have standing with God. I can approach the throne of grace boldly in my times of need. There's this other step called sanctification. Sanctification is the progressive and ongoing work of God. So there's a sense in which we could say our salvation has an immediate effect at the point of conversion, new birth, but it also has an ongoing effect. So there's a sense in which making the distinction becomes somewhat dangerous, but it is also helpful, okay? I always want to understand that my saving and my progress in Christ are always owing to the work and power of God in my life. So that I am never taking progress for the fact that I used to be here and now I'm here. Good job, Tim. No. No, the only reason I went from where I was to where God wanted me to be is because he was at work in me. Okay, so I, there's a sense in which I didn't want to make the distinction and then I think it's helpful to make the distinction. One is an event. Have you come to saving faith and trust in Jesus, been born again? And then there's an outworking of that that is promised in this text. He will bring it to completion. The implication that it is that I always have room for progress in my Christian walk. Always. Till the day that I stand before God, he has promised to be at work in me to do his good will and his good pleasure. My progress then is a cooperative endeavor. Here's, here's what I think we tend to think in the Christian experience. In salvation, God did a work. He saved me. He rescued me from my sin. He did his bit. And now it's up to me. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. That is a godless perspective. Okay? If you think you were saved by God and you're sanctified by Tim, you're in trouble. 
Okay, you need a shift of thinking. You need to be desperately relying upon God because that's his promise here. He will bring to completion what he started. So Philippians 2, if you want to look there real quickly, verse 12 and 13, I think will help you to understand this concept more fully. There's a couple times throughout the book of Philippians that Paul gets on this train, this idea of God is at work and God is energizing and God is empowering. And that's why success in our Christian experience is likely and hopeful. So I should, we should be confident that I can get from where I am to where God wants me to be because of his power being at work in me. So 2, 12 through 14 says this. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen to what Paul says, continue to work at your salvation with fear and trembling. Be aware that you're in a battle. Be aware that the enemy wants to take you down. But also remember that you're not alone. My wife and I, we've been driving in the car recently. She read to me Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, it was like bedtime reading. Okay. But I, I got to tell you something. The way that story resolves, when Aslan comes on the scene and, and demonstrates his complete ability to do everything for you, he doesn't do everything for them. What he does is he says to the, the four children, I am here for you. I am with you. But the battle is hard. And you're going to have to stand up to that battle. I'm always in the wings. When get, things get too difficult, I'll come near. But you got to do your part. And it, that's the essence of this, this experience of this walk of faith. We're not adequate for these things. Our adequacy, the Bible says, comes from God. That's hopeful. Do you see? So the struggle is real, the battle is real, it can be hard, but God is for you. And that is the promise of this text in such a beautiful way. That's why in verse 12 of chapter three, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, but I press on that I may lay hold. Do you see? Paul's understanding, there's still room for growth. I'm sitting in a prisoner as an apostle of Jesus Christ and there's still room for growth. And for deeper joy and greater confidence in God's work. Paul wants them to know that God has devoted his limitless resources to their total transformation and the perfection of his will in their lives. We sing this in a song. A mighty fortress is our God. I think it's the second verse that says this. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask, Kate, who this may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And I love the last phrase. And he must win the battle. Do you see what Martin Luther was coming to realize? That in that great Protestant Reformation era, the price was very high. Many were killed. Many faced the sword because of the gospel of Christ. And, and, and Martin Luther's conviction and his, his powerful conclusion in this song is he must win the battle. So folks, we run to God and say, God, I'm surrendered and unable. 
You are powerful and you have limitless resources that you can pour into my life. Do you understand why Jesus on the week of his departure, on the eve of his departure in John 15, looked at his disciples and said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Branches don't do well alone. I have a wisteria plant on my back porch. I grew it up over a trellis. And I noticed that when I cut branches off, they die. But the vine continues to thrive. Folks, we need to remember that God is for us. And that he is pouring into our lives limitless resources so that his work in us will come to completion. That's the promise. That what he started, he will complete it. And this is the work of the Spirit. And I think it is so important that we pause and say this here. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, So I say, in this battle with the flesh, so I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Do you understand that? As God is bringing it to completion, and you will face temptations and battles and struggles, walk in the Spirit. In the power of the spirit who comes to bring transformation and to make this process of the outworking of my salvation through sanctification through to the end. That should give us such great joy and dependence and confidence that God is for us. Perhaps this morning you're in a season of struggle. Maybe for you there's faltering. I want to encourage you to rest in this truth. This is a verse that has deeply encouraged my heart on a regular basis. Because we all go through seasons of struggle. We all go through seasons of doubt. Times when there is fear and struggle that is present. One writer said it this way. God has not lost interest in you or control over your life. That's powerful, isn't it? Because what do I think? I think in my rebellion that God loses interest. And the truth is because I am his son, he never loses interest. And he never lets go of his child. And I hope that truth will settle into your life. He is devoted to your progress. And if you memorize these kinds of promises, it will begin to transform and change your life. Let these promises drive out worry, which is anxiety over something that may or may not occur. Let this promise take stress out of your life, which is concern over what we can't change or control. Let this promise confront the fear that may be present in your life this morning as you seek to get to where God wants you to be. Fear is a dreadful uneasiness that makes things appear worse than they are. I don't know about you, but I find myself waking up at night. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. If you know what I'm saying. Sometimes I wake up and the list starts to scroll of all that I have to do or forgot to do. And I get this sense of anxiety. And I have to cry out to God. I say, God, you have to help me. I'll just pray through those things, cast that burden on the Lord, claim a promise like this, and rest to the best that you can. I know it's not always easy. 
I know sometimes it's hard to get back to sleep. Been there. Done that. My hope is in the Lord. I hope that yours is as well this morning. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And here's the last phrase, until the day of Christ. So you may ask this morning, well, what is the extent of God's promises? How, how far into my life does it reach? Until the day of Christ. Until that final victory day. Until the, what some theologians call the parousia. That is the manifestation of Christ. Just like Aslan comes on the scene and he manifests himself in the Chronicles of Narnia. As the victor, as the one who contains all power against all opposition. Christ is for you until the day of his appearing. That is his promise. And it is that promise that we need to learn to rest in. John 14, in light of that promise, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Claim the promise. Find confidence in the fact that God is decidedly for you. These simple thoughts as we close. The goal is progress, not perfection. Okay, please understand. So part of me wants to say, cut yourself a break. Okay, Don't be so hard on yourself. But also, don't tolerate sin in your life. We have our perfection, our standing by faith in Christ. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I am counted righteous in Christ. So he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my effort, but a righteousness that comes through Christ by faith. Okay, so that my standing, my position with God is perfection, but the goal in my daily life is progress. Okay, and I hope you can, you can capture that distinction. Striving for perfection, but knowing that I always have more room to advance. He will bring it to completion. That's the idea of that promise. Maybe today you feel beyond reach. Too sinful, too flawed, too broken. And as a result, hopeless. I'm going to encourage you this morning, if you never trusted Christ, come to God and admit the truth. You want to destroy sin in your life? You want to find victory over sin? Confess your faults one to another. And God will give you victory. You know what I tend to do when sin is present in my life? I tend to hide and isolate. And in that moment, I am moving away from what I need most. And that is the body of Christ and the power of God. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to roar and cause you to cower in isolation. The Lamb of God roars to demonstrate to you his power. He wants to change your life. The goal is progress, not perfection. God is devoted to the progress and success of your life, dear brother and sister in Christ. And I hope you will cling to that promise that God is decidedly and powerfully and beautifully for you. And Paul would then say this in Romans 8, 28. He says, and it's a beautiful verse. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know what the answer is? I've shared this with you before. Everybody can be against me. Paul's in prison. But if God is for us, who can successfully, listen, oppose the work of God 
in your life. He says, I will bring it to completion. Despite the obstacles that you face, despite the struggles, the temptations, the failures. If you flee to him and yield to him and surrender to him, he will continue that work in your life. He is devoted to my progress. That's a thought that has at times genuinely broken my heart. Because I am not always devoted to God. But he never lets go. He is always decidedly for me in his son, Jesus Christ. And the last thought I want to leave you with is God always finishes what he starts. Despite surprises, despite sweating out in speech class, despite can't read your exam, he always finishes what he starts. And my prayer for you as I've gone through this text is that you would be so resting in God that the chin that's down and despairing would be lifted up. And that you would become genuinely confident in God. And as a result, hopeful, optimistic, that if God is for me, who can successfully oppose the promise of God that he is bringing it to completion until the very end? Who can oppose that? The answer is no one. I just need to be faithful. And this makes us humble, hopeful, and tolerable. So I trust that this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I trust that the hope that we have in Christ would become clear to you. I trust that your true status as a sinner in need of a savior would become clear and that you, if you sense God prompting and drawling and convicting, that you would respond this morning and say, God, save me, forgive me, rescue me, change me, make me your child and set me on that beautiful road that leads to maturity in Christ. Maybe this morning you're here as a Christian. Maybe you're where I was and have been at times in my life in rebellion against God. And nobody wants, but I'm saying no. My prayer this morning for you would be that God would confront your resistance and shatter it through the love that he has for you. And that his commitment to you would, would begin to deeply affect you. That it would cultivate in you affections to be surrendered more deeply and fully to God's plan and purposes in your life. Would you pray with me this morning as we prepare to sing our closing song? Our Father, as we have looked through this text, it is a beautiful, hope-filled, hope-inspiring promise. Lord, thank you that you confront us when we walk a road of rebellion. And thank you that when we surrender, you have all of the resources that are needed for success in the endeavor of Christian living for your glory. And Lord, at the end of the day, we realize it's not about us. It's not about our abilities or lack thereof. It is about your work in us. 
So we pray this morning, Lord, that if there's someone here that does not know Christ, that today they would come to a place where they solely cling to Christ. And Lord, for that friend here this morning who may be walking on a road of rebellion, trying to escape the clear will of God, Father, I pray that they will realize that God is not going to give up. He's not going to let off his pursuit of his child. And that because of that knowledge of God's persistent, durable love, they would turn from their rebellion. And they would find saving hope in you alone. We pray that these blessings would uh, be present today, Father, in the life of your church. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things and in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together so I cling to Christ. Father, I can come. Father, I can come to you. Most of deeds I've done. My pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has won. He alone pleads my acceptance, all my works aside. So I come with empty hands and I cling to Christ. tell me I'm condemned and that I can draw near but your spirit calls me homeward with your words of life Jesus bore my every sin so I cling to Christ It's more than I can do to keep my hold on you, but all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. It's more than I can do to keep my hold. So I cling 